Welcome to Murder Minute. On this episode, the story of Mark Kilroy and the hunt for cult leader Adolfo Constanzo, known as El Padrino, continues. But first, your true crime headlines. An 84-year-old Texas woman was arrested and charged with the murder of her husband 35 years ago, and a TV show helped investigators solve the decades-old cold case. Johnny Alberton was shot five times as he entered his home on May 14, 1984. His wife Norma told police that she had come to find the door locked, and when she looked through the window and saw guns, she worried and contacted authorities. Some money and valuables were missing from the home, and Johnny Alberton's death was determined to have occurred during a robbery. In 2015, Leon County Sheriff Kevin Ellis reopened the case and reached out to the Oxygen Network television show Cold Justice. Over the course of five weeks, the sheriff worked with producer Johnny Bonds, a former homicide detective with the Houston Police Department. Together, they re-interviewed witnesses and reviewed the evidence in the TV show's state-of-the-art crime lab. Speaking to a reporter, Sheriff Ellis characterized the investigation as truly a team effort and said that the case may not have been solved without the help of the TV show. Cold Justice will feature the case in an upcoming episode of the show set to air next year. As a result of this investigation, police are also taking another look at the death of Norma Albritton's 13-year-old daughter, who was shot with a rifle in 1981 inside the same home. At the time, her death was ruled a suicide, but investigators now want to revisit the case. The sentencing hearing of a convicted killer in Youngstown, Ohio, erupted into chaos this week as the victim's two adult sons dragged the handcuffed man from his chair at the defense table and beat him until deputies could subdue them. The attack, which was caught on video, took place during the sentencing hearing for Dale Williams, 62, who was convicted of murdering their mother, Elizabeth Pledger Stewart, in 2017. On the day of the killing, Williams crashed his van into the back of Pledger Stewart's car. As she got out of the vehicle, she was repeatedly shot five times in broad daylight. Youngstown police officers pulled up as the shooting was taking place. Wilson surrendered to police. The night before she was murdered, Pledger Stewart filed a report with the police, saying that Williams was upset and had vowed to catch her in the streets. Dale Williams was taken to the hospital for examination after his courtroom beatdown and his sentencing hearing has been delayed. Williams could face a sentence of 23 years to life in prison. Elizabeth Pledger Stewart's sons were each held in contempt of court and sentenced to 30 days each on charges of assault and obstructing official business. An American scientist found dead on the Greek island of Crete last week was the victim of foul play, her autopsy concluded. Suzanne Eaton, 59, was a molecular biologist at the Max Planck Institute in Dresden, Germany. She was visiting the island for a conference and vanished after going out for a run one morning. Her body would be discovered in an abandoned World War II bunker, six miles from where she had gone missing. Police have called her death a criminal act. 
Eaton was an avid runner and a black belt in Taekwondo, leading investigators to believe that she may have been attacked by more than one assailant. A Greek news organization has reported that there was DNA recovered from under the murdered woman's fingernails. But so far, police have not identified any suspects in her murder. Cindy Hendy, the girlfriend and accomplice of infamous toy box killer David Parker Ray, is scheduled to be released from prison this week after just over half of her sentence. Ray and Hendy were arrested in 1999 after a naked and bloodied woman with a metal collar padlocked around her neck escaped from their trailer in the small desert community of Elephant Butte, New Mexico. The woman told police that she had been raped and tortured by a man and woman who had kidnapped her three days earlier from Albuquerque, where she had been working as a prostitute. The man and woman tied and gagged her and padlocked a metal collar around her neck, then drove for more than an hour before arriving at a trailer where they chained her to a bedpost and made her listen to an audio tape. On the tape, David Parker Ray instructed his victim that she was to become their sex slave, and he outlined in great detail the torture that he intended to inflict upon her. He cautioned her that she was not his first slave and that if she did not cooperate, she would be killed. Over the next three days, she was subjected to electric shocks, whippings, and repeated rapes by David Parker Ray and Cindy Hendy. Then on the afternoon of March 22, 1999, while Ray was gone and the victim was alone with Hendy, she saw an opportunity to escape. Hendy had left the keys to her restraints sitting on a table, and the victim was able to free herself and dial 911. When Cindy Hendy realized what she was doing, she quickly hung up the phone. The two women struggled, and the victim was able to stab Hendy in the neck with an ice pick and run from the trailer. Police apprehended Ray and Hendy, who both told police during questioning that the young woman was a heroin addict who they were helping to detox. However, when police searched the property, they found a homemade torture chamber equipped with an assortment of sex toys, torture devices, and drawings demonstrating various torture techniques. They also found the audio tape that the victim had described, as well as a videotape of the couple raping and torturing an unidentified woman. David Parker Ray and Cindy Hendy were both charged with a variety of crimes, including kidnapping. Hendy turned on her boyfriend almost immediately, agreeing to testify against him in exchange for leniency. David Parker Ray accepted a plea deal and a 224-year prison sentence. He died of a heart attack behind bars in 2002. Cindy Hendy's plea deal came three months before a new law required violent criminals to serve at least 85% of their sentence. When she is released this week, she will have served almost 20 years of a 36-year sentence. Those are your true crime headlines. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Up next, the story of Mark Kilroy and the cult leader known as El Padrino continues. But first, a quick break.
Have you ever taken a look at the ingredients in your beauty and hygiene products and asked yourself, what are all these chemicals and how could they possibly be good for my body? I know I have. And have you tried organic alternatives and found them ineffective? Well, I have a product to share with you. It's called Native. Native creates simple, effective products that people use in their bathroom every day. And Native has formulated a deodorant without aluminum, parabens, or talc that actually works. With Native, less is more. This deodorant has fewer, simpler ingredients so that you know what you're putting on your body, like coconut oil, shea butter, and tapioca starch. Native is made in the USA, cruelty-free, with ingredients thoughtfully sourced from around the world. And Native comes in a wide variety of scents for men and women. Plus, they release new limited edition seasonal scents throughout the year. Their classic deodorant scents include coconut and vanilla, their most popular scent, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint, and my personal favorite, lavender and rose. And if you don't want to smell like a powdered flower, Native also offers an unscented formula and baking soda-free formula for those with sensitivities. Native really works, so don't hold back. Native can hang with your workout, your busy schedule, and a 16-hour day. We love Native, and if we can't convince you, check out their over 7,000 five-star reviews. Try Native risk-free with free returns and exchanges in the USA. And for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code MM during checkout. That's nativedeodorant.com, promo code MM at checkout. Go native and take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. If you like suspenseful stories with a bit of underlying darkness, and we know you do, we want to tell you about a new podcast that we think you'll love. It's called Believable, produced by Narratively. It's a show about how our stories come to define who we are. At the center of each episode is a person struggling to understand an extraordinary experience, something that happened to them that shook their world. After this episode, stick around to hear a teaser for Believable, and make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy! Welcome back to Murder Minute, 
Today, Adolfo Constanzo, known as El Padrino, and how the murder of an American student, Mark Kilroy, brought a murderous cult leader to justice. Adolfo Constanzo was born to Cuban immigrant Delia Aurora Gonzalez on November 1, 1962, in Miami, Florida. She gave birth to Adolfo, her first child, at just 15 years old. She would later go on to have three more children, all by different fathers. After her first husband died, they moved to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where she soon remarried. Adolfo was baptized Catholic and even served as an altar boy. All the while, the family was reportedly practicing Santeria. According to locals, Adolfo's mother and grandmother were both high priestesses in the religion, a blend of Afro-Cuban religion and certain elements of Catholicism practiced throughout the Caribbean. Young Adolfo even accompanied his mother on trips to Haiti, where they learned about voodoo. In 1972, when Adolfo was 10, the family returned to Miami. Soon after, his stepfather died, leaving the family with some money. By age 14, Adolfo Constanzo had started to apprentice with a local sorcerer and began to practice Palo Mayombe, a form of black magic. His mother remarried again, and Adolfo's new stepfather was involved in both Palo Mayombe and drug dealing. Soon, the neighbors began finding small dead animals on their doorsteps. Adolfo began practicing witchcraft for money, with curses and incantations as his trade, and he and his mother were arrested on several occasions for petty crimes like vandalism and theft. After Adolfo graduated from high school and was subsequently kicked out of prep school, he decided to leave Miami. Adolfo moved to Mexico City, where his good looks had landed him some modeling work, and where he expected a new legion of potential clients might be waiting. And Adolfo Constanzo soon met his first disciples. Jorge Montez and Martin Quintana were Adolfo's first followers and his lovers, having been lured in by Adolfo's charisma and his knowledge of the occult. Adolfo would seduce many other disciples into his cult in Mexico City's Zona Rosa, where he read tarot cards. Together, they built a lucrative business aiding the superstitious by casting spells for his clients. For $4,500, he would perform small animal sacrifices, promising protection for his criminal clientele during their illicit activities. Adolfo Constanzo was building his reputation as a powerful padrino in Mexico City. He worked for everyone, from wealthy drug dealers, hitmen, and cartel members, 
to movie stars, politicians, and corrupt police officers. All of them were seeking power and protection. All of them paid handsomely for it. Adolfo Constanzo was never short on clientele. The Padrino's rituals became known as a spectacle, and the high society criminals came to believe in their magic. As Adolfo Constanzo's power, wealth, and influence grew, it seemed to confirm to his clients and followers that his witchcraft was real. Adolfo sacrificed a range of small animals, like goats and chickens, but soon moved to larger animals that were more difficult to obtain, even sacrificing lions and zebras. The more exotic, the more lucrative. Adolfo eventually decided that the only way to increase his power was to go back to the roots of Palomayombe, which required human remains. He and his followers began to raid graveyards to gather bones for his cauldron. It did not take long before Adolfo and his cult came to believe that if they wanted true power, it could only be taken from live human sacrifice. Adolfo Constanzo would mutilate and kill more than 20 human beings during his ascension in Mexico City. Many of them his rivals and those who crossed him. By 1987, Adolfo Constanzo was far from just a tarot card reader in the Zona Rosa. He was now El Padrino, living in a new condo with a garage full of luxury cars. His police and cartel contacts also allowed him to start dealing drugs himself on the side. As Adolfo Constanzo grew more and more wealthy and powerful, he decided that the success of the cartels were due to the rituals that he performed for them and demanded that he become a full business partner with one of his most powerful clients, the Calzada family. When the family refused, their leader and six other family members disappeared. Their bodies were later found mutilated with their fingers, toes, hearts, ears, testicles, and brains missing. In one body, the spinal cord was missing. These would become Adolfo Constanzo's hallmarks. He added them to his cauldron to increase his powers. But the cult leader would soon meet a new crime family. Adolfo had begun dating a young woman named Sara Aldrete, who became high priestess of the cult and second in command. It was Sara who introduced Adolfo Constanzo to the Hernandez brothers. In 1988, Adolfo Constanzo moved to Rancho Santa Elena, where he carried out more ritual murders, often of rival drug dealers, promising protection for the Hernandez family as they trafficked drugs across the border. 
1988, Adolfo Constanzo moved to Rancho Santa Elena, where he carried out more ritual murders, often of rival drug dealers, promising protection for the Hernandez family as they trafficked drugs across the border. If they wanted strength, Adolfo ordered them to bring him a strong male who would be sacrificed and his muscles would go into the pot. If they wanted youth, a child. And if they wanted superior intelligence, the brain of an Anglo-male medical student. Adolfo Constanzo ordered his followers to go to Matamoros during spring break and find their victim. They found pre-med student Mark Kilroy. But the sacrifice of Mark Kilroy would be El Padrino's undoing. Now under international investigation, Adolfo Constanzo fled back to Mexico City with four of his cult followers. U.S. and Mexican authorities struggled to follow the murderer's trail as they suspected that he might return home to Miami. Additional sightings of Constanzo were rumored as far north as Chicago, Illinois, and did nothing to narrow down police efforts. But after consulting other local witchcraft practitioners and sorcerers, the police heard that Adolfo Constanzo was probably hiding in Huatamac, one of the city's boroughs. Sixteen investigators were sent into the area. They followed a man from a local supermarket who they'd seen attempting to buy large amounts of groceries with U.S. dollars. That man was Alvaro de Leon, a known accomplice of Adolfo Constanzo. On May 6, 1989, a team was sent to surround the apartment that de Leon had repeatedly returned to. When the police broke formation to investigate a suspicious vehicle parked outside, Adolfo Constanzo spotted them from his window and opened fire. He had been waiting. Adolfo began to burn his money on the stovetop and furiously hurl coins from the window ledge saying that everything was lost and that no one was going to have his money. Forty-five minutes passed. Afraid of capture and out of ammunition, Adolfo Constanzo broke and ordered De Leon to shoot him. He hesitated, and Adolfo struck him. He threatened that De Leon would suffer the wrath of hell for refusing to obey El Padrino. De Leon opened fire. When police arrived, his followers screamed that El Padrino was dead. Police found Adolfo Constanzo, aged 27, laying dead in the closet alongside one of his followers. Seven of Adolfo's followers were arrested that day. Sara Aldrete later recalled that Adolfo, quote, demanded to be killed because he said everything was finished. In total, 
14 people would be brought in for their connection to his crimes, including Salvador Vidal Garcia Alarcón, a police chief who was indicted for drug trafficking and was linked to Adolfo Constanzo by cult members who claimed that he acted as the group's contact in the police. The cult members were charged with a wide range of crimes, from murder to drug running to possession of military weapons. Initially, the cult's godmother, Sarah Aldrete, initially, the cult's godmother, Sarah Aldrete, was convicted of conspiracy and jailed for just six years. But in a second trial, she, Elio Hernandez, and Serafine Hernandez were each sentenced to over 60 years in prison for murder. De Leon was sentenced to 30 years. American authorities have said that if Sarah Aldrete is ever released from prison, they plan to prosecute her for the murder of Mark Kilroy. Two months after Mark Kilroy's body was found, his parents established the Mark Kilroy Foundation to promote drug awareness, education, and prevention. Since Mark's dream was to become a doctor after college, his parents decided to help others and continue his dream through the program. The foundation sponsors and works alongside the nonprofit SAFE, Substance Abuse-Free Environment. Counselors from these groups visit schools in Santa Fe to hold regular programs for roughly 800 students. Every summer, they host youth camps, which invite young people to participate in outdoor activities like archery, golfing, and swimming. Besides counseling kids and teenagers with drug advice, Kilroy's parents also advise young people who plan to travel for spring break, suggesting to stay in groups, keep an eye on each other, and not wander off on their own. The family have put any and all money given to them, including all book sale monies, into the Foundation's anti-drug and violence prevention efforts. In Jim Kilroy and Bob Stewart's book, Sacrifice, Mark's father relates a very personal account of the family's search for their son. After Mark was found, it was a father's determination to turn evil into good. On the 20th anniversary of his death, Mark's parents visited Matamoros to personally thank those who had played a role in the search for their missing son. They have maintained a single comfort throughout this loss. That if their son Mark Kilroy had not suffered such a great tragedy, the ritualistic killings of Adolfo Constanzo would have gone on unchecked and that through their son's sacrifice, countless lives were saved. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Stick around for a preview of the new podcast by Narratively, Believable. If you like it, Give them a little love and subscribe.
We tell ourselves stories to make sense of the world, to make sense of our lives and the lives of others. Stories help us find truth. They define our reality. But what happens when your version of the truth is different from everyone else's? Everybody's telling me to rest and relax and I don't have any issues. And I said, this is not going away. This is what's going to happen. We were living in two separate places in our own minds. What happens when the story people believe about you is false? You're not going to be anybody. When she said that sort of stuff, my insides were like, you're lying. It's rare survivors of police shootings. People don't get a chance to take it to trial because they go to the funeral home. What happens when two perspectives about the truth collide? From Narratively, this is Believable, a show about how our stories define who we are. I could see this truck about to hit me. Everybody else saw a field of flowers. Is this all okay to be happening? Is she crossing a line here? There's a reason that therapists are in jail right now because of things like this. In our first season, we're bringing you incredible stories of people trying to rewrite their narrative. They could have put a gun in my hand and the story would have been whatever the hell they wanted the story to be. I went on this complete warpath to just find the answers. And people trying to escape from the beliefs that hold them back. I wanted to resist what I was going to be, which was nothing. Believable. A new podcast from Narratively coming this spring. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.